uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that's in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. Welcome to this episode of Faith in Your Recovery. We're glad you've joined us. We have something special to share with you today with Mr. Sean Gillum. He'll be taking over here in a minute. We'll address a lot of the issues, some of his experiences, his battles, the struggles. I know a little about Sean, but on the other hand, don't know anything about Sean like we will 45 minutes from now. So Sean Gillum, welcome to Faith in Your Recovery. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for having me. We welcome that. We thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. Folks, we recognize and we realize that when we are at our worst, that's when God shows up at his best. And before we're done here today, we're not only going to prove that, we're going to give you an example of it happening. And then we'll just leave it in your lap, on your heart, and in your soul to make the right choices, okay? Again, welcome. Sean, tell the folks a little about your life right now. Tell them some of your likes, your interests, any hobbies. How do you spend your free time? Thank you. Uh you know, my life today is uh, full of a lot of, a lot of uh, family, a lot of activities, a lot of fellowship, a lot of things that I've never had before. Um, I uh, I'm a full-time single father to a uh, now six-year-old boy, and uh, that used to be a very hopeless situation, and and today it's absolutely not hopeless. Um, I uh, very active in the 12-step community of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have some sponsees. I've got a sponsor. I attend all the meetings. Um, I'm very active in the uh, community of the LDS Church in Blackfoot, Idaho. Um, and as far as the hobbies go, I, if I can just stay in the moment, spend some quality time with my son, or spend some quality time with a fellow addict or alcoholic, um, that's about as far as it goes. Staying in the moment, that's pretty powerful right there. And that's, uh, that's where the victory continues to come from and how you continue to win that battle. Appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. Having a six-year-old son, that in and of itself has got to keep you moving. Yes, absolutely. Oh, good deal. Good deal. And we're thankful to hear the change that's taken place. I know she said it had been a hopeless situation, but that Hope is there now, and so is the present as well as the future. Congratulations thank to you, you. Thank you. Sean, let's go back early in your life. Tell us tell us what your growing up time was like. Share with the folks maybe some of those things that, that caused you extra struggle that may be attributed to the addiction, whether the finger points that direction or not. We know it all has an effect. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know... <laughs> Previous circumstances as a child, it could be different for a lot of us. I've heard a lot of different stories now that I'm in recovery. Some people uh, haven't had these experiences, and I just think it's important to clarify that 
just because these experiences may not have had happened to you uh, or to someone struggling with addiction, the feelings that I, I express and that I feel are probably common. Uh, growing up, there was, you know, my mom and dad were uh, drug addicts and, and uh, active addiction. Um, and and uh, the childhood was really rough, you know, getting taken from one parent to the other, um, one state to another. I always felt different. I always sought out attention. I wasn't getting it at home like I like I would want, and like I saw around me, I saw all these other children having having these nice clothes and and having both parents in the home and and staying in the same school, making best friends continuously, and and I was always hopping in and out of schools, and so as a result, I kind of connected with the people that understood the kids that had the same kind of lifestyle, the same kind of home life. And, uh, and I did what they did. I got introduced to drugs real young. And, uh, and like I said, I started seeking attention no matter how much pain it, it caused, no matter how much it affected my family without even realizing it. When I was a young kid, I mean, my parents got clean and sober when I was about eight years old. So I had an opportunity thereafter to have all those things I thought I wanted. Sean, so what were their drugs of choice? What did they battle the most with? You know, that's that's kind of their their story to tell. Um, I know they did meth um, and uh, and and meth and alcohol, as far as I know. Okay. Uh, We don't sit down and talk about those specifics, but my father today celebrates uh, 25 years clean and sober. Well, hooray for him. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's neat to hear. Okay, go ahead and take us into into your decline, your spiral. You said you had that feeling of not being connected. Obviously, a lack of community, it sounds like you were here and there in several different schools, and it sounds like you were many times moved from moms to dads and back the other way, and I noticed you said even state to state. Tell us how that played out and what that did to you at that time. We realize you were a young person and you couldn't have your thumb on the pulse, but as you look back, tell us what that created. You know, it created a lot of fear, or fear, a lot of fear, a lot of disconnection, uh, as you had mentioned. Um, you know, I never really felt like I belonged anywhere I went, um, and as a result, my behavior started to get really bad. Everybody owed me something. Nobody understood me, uh, and, and from my perspective as a child. So I got in a lot of fights. I tried every type of drug there was that was given to me. Um, I demanded respect and I demanded things from my parents and and I just really really acted out and I pushed everybody away from me as a result um, and like I'd mentioned the drug started really young I was about eight years old when I started smoking weed um, I, my probation officer got tired of arresting me when I was about 12 years old I got permission to drink alcohol had my first blackout and it was pretty much oblivion from then until 23 when I got clean and sober. So from the age of 12 to 23, you were into the bottle a bunch, it sounds like. Blackout drunk every day. Every day. Wow. Well, how did you function during that time? You know, I, uh, I, I would... I mean, freshman year of high school, just to start there, I would I would get a pint of peppermint schnapps. Uh, my brother would take me to the liquor store. I'd get a pint, pint of peppermint schnapps. I'd go to school. I would drink that as the school day went on to kind of maintain. I would make sure my homework got finished before I left school, and then I would go straight to the party house after school every single night. And I would wake up the next morning in my bed not knowing how I got there. Wow. Wow. That had to be a dark time and bring with it a lot of issues, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain as you look back. 
Yeah, and, and you know, looking back, I it's uh, it was all your fault. It was everybody around me's fault. So I, I couldn't hold any accountability to what was really happening. And um, so I just was a professional victim. And, and as I mentioned, if it's everybody's fault, then I can't really feel what's really going on. I, I, I don't know what the problem really is. I like your willingness to identify as a professional victim. We don't <laughs> always get that, okay? And I know you don't say that with a lot of pride, but you say it with a lot of truth. A lot of conviction, yes. Yes, yes, a lot of conviction. I'm reminded of the old adage that many times those who try to control others do that because they're so out of control of their own life. That's so here you are trying to tell people or point a finger at them for fault and reason and excuse only because you didn't know how to deal with yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's go a little, a little beyond that. Uh, you're talking about your high school years there and that daily battle that you fought with the bottle and that continued on for several years. What happened to you after high school, Sean? Well, there's some de- details and some circumstances that, that you know, led to me finding hope in recovery. And, uh, it started with getting DUIs, uh, early in high school prior to having my license or having, you know, being old enough to drink. Um, and I would go to those DUI classes and I would see these, uh, every 15 minute videos where people were going to prison for killing somebody while they were drinking and not remembering. And, and I remember vividly feeling really, I would feel like a lot of guilt and shame and I would feel just terrified to drink and drive. And yet I would still continue to do such a thing. Um, after high school, I had paid off all those DUIs and I got all those things I thought I needed, like a beautiful girlfriend, a house, a car, a job. And, um, and I had had an experience that I came home to, um, when I was about 19, I came home and I found my best friend sleeping with my fiance and I had just lost the job. Um, and, and so it, it declined really quick after that. I lost the house. I'm now homeless. And, uh, and I ended up in the hospital, uh, having a minor stroke because they found some blood clots in my left lung. And as I mentioned, I got sober just a few years after high school. So after that experience, things really declined. I couldn't stop using or drinking no matter how hard I wanted to. And then I ended up in the hospital with this newfound pulmonary embolisms in my left lung. That all was at the age of 19, did you say? In between 19 and 23. Okay. Had to be four pretty tough years. I'm going to guess you probably didn't know about tomorrow many times if you were going to make it or what that was going to mean. Is that accurate? It's accurate. I woke up every day uh, welcoming the idea, wishing that was happening. Yeah, yeah. The only way you knew of to get through it and to get over it was to end it or have it ended for you. One way or another, yes. Wow, tough times, tough times. Okay, that's at the age of 23, give or take a little bit. What happened after that? So after I now have these uh, this blood clotting disorder that I was uh, told about and taught about, the doctor had taught me that I couldn't drink alcohol and take these blood thinners at the same time, and uh, and I. I don't know how I did it, but I convinced the doctor that I I just begged with him and pleaded with him. And I said, well, I'll just drink two tall cans a day. You could give me a certain dose of blood thinners. I'll come in three times a week to get my INR level checked, how thick or thin my blood was. And he approved that. And I saw that doctor uh, three times in a six-month period. And I just could not not drink, whether it was life or death. I ended up back in the hospital with two minor heart attacks and a minor stroke. 
Um, and, uh, and the last time the doctor took the medicine away from me and he said, I'm killing you by giving you this medicine. And what I'm trying to identify here is the hopelessness of the disease. I, I had a loving family around me. I had all these people in the community trying to help me and I didn't notice it. I could not see it. And then here I am, this doctor's trying to help me and I'm pleading with him, begging, begging, telling him I'm not ever going to drink again. And I meant it with all my heart, just like all the other times prior to that. And I ended up uh, going to the liquor store instead of going home and I threw the medicine away and I bought a 40 and I had now accepted as long as I died drunk, that's all that mattered. I, I just gave up. Uh, fast forward real quick. Uh, I got this bright idea that if I started using that chemical drug I used to use, if I started using meth, as that's not a blood thinner, it'll be all better. And so, because when I was a young kid, I started using meth. But as I mentioned, I my probation officer got tired of putting me in juvenile hall, so I stopped and I started drinking heavy. Well, I tried to use meth instead of drink, so I didn't die, and and I ended up just a drunk tweaker stealing all your yard gnomes. <laughs> 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 and uh, it, it didn't take much time for me to hit bottom after that. I was I was on the streets. I was just hopeless and 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 full of guilt, shame, and remorse, and getting in trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble. So it was from meth to alcohol, back to meth, and the stealing of the yard gnomes. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, what what about those folks that you hung out with during that time? Was that a part of the culture you were with? Was it more individual or were you in, you know, a group setting uh, your community? Because I know you said a little bit ago you were on a search to be accepted, uh, to be a part of some community. And we will find the community, whether it's good or bad. How'd that play? Yeah, uh, you know, it is definitely the community, uh, the people that understand, right? Alone, I just kind of soaked in sorrow, and I and I, and and it was just too dark for me to be by myself. And so, the more I get connected with people that will listen to me vent and and pat me on the back and comfort me and show me any type of attention, dis- despite what we're doing, uh, the the better it was. And so, absolutely. It, it came, the community came right with the substance that I was using. So it was a matter of getting what you wanted instead of what you needed. Absolutely, and, and, and not having to hear the things I didn't want to hear. Okay. How long did this stage of the battle with meth carry on? Just about six months, and uh, I was uh, one day I was out in front of my mom's uh, house on my bicycle with my little basket tied to it, and I was doing things I shouldn't have done, and my mom obviously got sick and tired of watching her son kill himself, and so she called the cops, and she knew that I was out on bail for a joint suspension for some things I did prior to that, and uh, and so they came and picked me up, and so I got hauled off to, to jail on my way to prison. How long of a stay did you have in jail, then how long was it in prison? I spent about a year in jail uh, waiting to uh, go to prison, and the prison sentence was going to be 12 years, 8 months, and I got an alternative sentence. I got accepted into felony drug court, even though I didn't have any drug charges. Once again, my mother and my stepmother called the DA's office and said, hey, Sean's a really good kid. He's never been in trouble sober. He's just an alcoholic, and, and uh, I got an opportunity to do felony drug court at that time. So how long did that last? Felony drug court is an 18-month program, um, and I messed up about 11 months into it. I had a relapse, um, and then I got another chance, and I went into a meeting. I heard something I needed to hear that day, 11 months into felony drug court, and uh, I haven't had the obsession to drink or use since, and that was September 1st, 2012. 
And uh, and it took about three years for me to graduate that felony drug court program. We want to hear about we want to hear more about what it was that you heard here in just a minute. But as you're battling through all of that, as you're struggling to find some sort of hope, some sort of help, some sort of peace, some sort of positive connection that's going to help you move forward as you're fighting that battle, what were what were family relationships like for you? You know, my family had... Uh I, I lived with my father at the time uh, prior to being homeless, and, and um, he, he, he has all these answers, and he knows all about letting go and spirituality and the 12-step community, but I wasn't ready to listen, and he was the one person that it took a lot to finally get him to have to draw some boundaries and tell me I can't come home, and so the, the relationships were still there. He was still open to helping me and answering the phone. Um, but the communication, I separated myself from everybody in the world, especially somebody that is telling me what I don't want to hear or, or that's trying to show me any kind of love or affection because I was so full of guilt, shame, and remorse. And so I didn't have any one-on-one contact with them unless I needed something, sadly. Yeah. Yeah, heard that story more than once and where that guilt and shame and remorse, as you've labeled it, when that kicks in, uh, we just want to isolate more than ever. And, of course, isolation is somewhat the kiss of death when you're dealing with addiction. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So let's move this forward now in a little more positive way. Tell us about the climb uphill that got you to where you are now. Uh, you know, there's a long version of that and a short version of that. Um, I'm not sure exactly which one you're looking for. Go ahead and hit us with the long version. If we need to stop you, we'll ask you to, <laughs> to edit. Well, you know, it wasn't a choice that I made. I didn't I didn't just wake up one day and said, you know what, I'm never going to drink again. I didn't know that alcohol was the problem. I thought, I, I, or I didn't know that my thinking was the problem. I thought the booze was the problem. And uh, and as I had mentioned, I had had a relapse, and, and somehow I got the ambulance driver to take me back to my apartment that I was living at uh, without taking me to the hospital. And I went and told on myself to the drug court coordinator because I knew she had already found out about it. And, uh, and I, I faced her with a broken heart, bawling my eyes out, heart sunk to my shoes, just like all the accidents prior, the DUI classes. I had, I had all intentions, and I really, really, truly meant it with all my heart that things were going to be different. And she gave me another chance. And it, when I went into that meeting and that lady speaking in that meeting, she said something, and I heard her that day. I didn't hear much back then. I was always ready to respond or tell you how I can relate or one-up you. or So I was already thinking five steps ahead when people were talking to me back then. And this lady said, if you're looking for a manager of your own life, would you hire yourself to do it again? And I just shook my head and I said, no way, I would not hire myself to manage my life again. And she said, you might as well leave it up to a higher power. And for some reason, I sat in that meeting and I shut up. I quit making it about Sean. I quit trying to figure out the steps. I quit asking all these questions and trying to pick and choose what I wanted to do and what was good for me. And I just started taking action on my own life. I started taking action in that community. I got heavily involved with service. My sponsor had me do H&I meetings with them, which is hospitals and institutions. We would go into the recovery centers I was in, and I would sit right next to them and just sign the slips. 
And I learned how to be accountable. I learned how to show up. And most of all, I built a community around me. Uh, I was taught that addiction is separation and recovery is connection. And I was getting connected. I was put in the middle of the herd. And I just started taking action on my own life. And since then, I still do the same things I did in the beginning. It's been nine years. I got a community around me. I'm actively working the process of recovery. I actively help others. I actively practice prayer and meditation. Even though I don't have any kind of clear definition or understanding of God, I have a very, very strong connection to God because of the willingness to clear away all the stuff that is blocking me, like resentment and fear and anger and because the ability to practice prayer and practice actions in the moment that I might not even agree with or believe in, but that willingness gives me the results. And so today having my own life experiences and learning how to get through those experiences without anger, without resentment, without drinking, without using drugs and actually face them one experience at a time learning how to use them as a as a, a as a touchstone to spiritual growth they say pain is the touchstone to spiritual growth use them as assets and and pull through it a better person and today i'm the life i have today i anything can happen absolutely anything and i can promise you and assure you that my spiritual life will enhance through whatever struggles come my way let's talk about that uh that statement you just made in your life today, anything can happen. What, 12 hours ago, did you know you were going to be seated where you are right now, that you were going to be interviewed on Faith in Your Recovery in Anderson, Indiana, from an old bald guy? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely no, not. No, you didn't know that just hours ago I even, no did idea. you? I had no idea. So why were you willing to say yes when asked? Because it's our testimony and it's our experience that is the very thing that has the power to save lives of others. And so I was taught in recovery to get myself out of the way and focus on other people and, and, and focus on what God has in store for me. And so as a result, um, I'm gifted more than I could ever imagine. And so if I have no reason to say no, no drawn out reason, no reason to say no to traveling to Indiana to speak this whole week, if I've got no reason to say no, I better show up. Because as I mentioned, my personal experience and having gone through it successfully without using drugs or drinking is the very, very thing that saves the lives of other alcoholics and drug addicts. You made a comment there about traveling to Indiana for all this. Again, you came here from Idaho, right? Yes. Where did you, where did you encounter your first experiences with recovery in the recovery community? Was that in Idaho? Uh, in my own recovery. In your own recovery. My first experiences were in Woodland, California. Woodland, I, California. That's where in California, may I ask? Uh, it's by, um, <laughs> it's in between Davis, California and Sacramento, California. Okay. We'll just call it Sacramento. Sacramento. Okay. I grew up in Sacramento, California, and most of my recovery was in Sacramento, California. Okay, so from Sacramento to Idaho to Anderson yes. to this moment, and you kind of referred back just a moment ago in one of your statements to the idea of having to use or having the privilege to use your experience to reach others who may be going through the same kind of experience. Yes. How... 
what would you want to say to those who are battling the battle that you were in the darkest part of for so long? You know, if I could say something, it's, it's, I had to be exposed to the truth and I had to be ready to open my ears enough to hear what I needed to hear. I had to no longer be a victim, get some sort of gift of desperation. So it may not be an outside circumstance. It may not be losing a wife or kids or ill health. It could just be a feeling deep down inside you, a feeling of, you know what, I just can't go on like this. Something has to change. And so long as you have that feeling and you're just tired, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, I would say to expose yourself to the truth. And the only way I would have heard what I needed to hear that day is if I walked into a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where there were people on the same track with the same experiences that have made it out of hell that I was in. And so just be sure, if you're feeling that way, expose yourself to the truth. Get to a meeting. Get to a fellowship. Get to anywhere where there's other humans that may have had that same experience and that have made it out of it. You know, those who have been there and done that, I don't care what they've been there or where that was or what the done that might have been, have a way of sharing it and relating that others can't. And even far beyond addiction, we have those those struggles in life to where when we hear somebody else and how they've dealt with their struggles, it's almost a, a promise to us that we can make it out of that same darkness. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you told us a little bit about your faith there earlier. The name of our podcast, Faith in Your Recovery. Sean, take those words, define them to us from your point of view, please. The only way I can have faith in anything, my, my old belief is seeing is believing. I used to think I had to see it, you know, and if God is real, he would show up and I would have to see him. And and the fact is, most scientific things, anything in this world, it started out of some sort of faith. Everything. The Wright brothers flying an airplane. It started out with the mustard seed of faith. And, and what do you know? It blew up and it worked and it made, it made a fool out of everyone. And so in my recovery, especially in the very beginning when I heard what I needed to hear, I had to see the examples of God working in other people's lives. I didn't have to believe in God. I didn't have to identify it or define it, but I could not deny that something was happening in those fellowships, in those meetings. I would hear about women getting their children back. I would see men talking about being homeless for years, and now they're shining, and they got a light in their eyes, and they go to work every day. I would, I would see the miracles before me, and, and, and that is what convinced me that maybe I, too, can have these experiences. And then as a result of believing that, okay, it might be possible for me, too, I had my own experiences. And I made it through a custody battle. And I got my son back. And I made it through loss of jobs. And I made it through failed relationships. And I made it through injuries and hospital stays. And I made it through... Not not alone. I wasn't by myself. I made it through as a result of the hand of God or the hand of AA holding my hand and sharing their common experiences and guiding me through these things. So today I believe I have a really strong faith and 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 I don't have to do anything else with that. I, I practice the prayer. It's on my heart in my life. And as a result, I get to have a peace and serenity about me despite what happens when you. When you get to that point where you can truly walk in faith, life changes. Yeah. Uh, 
it just, you know, becomes fresh and new. And I don't know what tomorrow necessarily holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. Yes. And even before we get there, I know who holds the next moment here with us as we've gathered here to share. I have one story that may help oh, with faith, please. if that's okay. Yes. Uh, in June, I was in a four-wheeling accident with my son. And, and this isn't the first type of accident or the first tough situation, but it shows you it shows you the difference in my reaction to it. In June, we were in a four-wheeling accident. We were on top of a mountain in Lava Hot Springs, Idaho. And it's one of those big four-wheelers, heavy, full-size ones. And, and uh, we hit a rock, and the four-wheeler started to climb the mountain next to you know, the wall next to me. And it sent us over, and my son landed first. I landed way below him. I wasn't even in reach. I couldn't even, I could hardly see, like, see him. I sure as heck couldn't reach him. And I looked up to see my son, and he was getting up on all fours, and, and that four-wheeler was about to land on top of my son. I could see my. the bottom of it. And somehow God allowed me to take to put, put myself from here and wrap my leg around my son, and the four-wheeler snapped my leg towards him. And I grabbed the four-wheeler, and I muscled it on top of myself. It was slow motion. I muscled it on top of myself, and it snapped my leg the other direction, and it sent me down the mountain. And the four-wheeler was in the trees down below me. All the clothes and stuff are scattered. My son was okay. And, uh, and I grabbed onto a bush so I didn't fall down anymore. And what do you know? My cell phone was cracked up and broken, but it landed right next to me. Everything else was gone far away. I got to pick it up. I got to call for help. I had some friends there, but they were way ahead of us. And I just said, hey, my leg's broken. And they came and and uh, they came up and he's all worried about me. And I was singing the ABCs to my son because he was terrified. And I wasn't scared. I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't crying. I wasn't anything. I knew my son's life was saved. So I had a heart full of gratitude. And, you know, even so, I got to take a little video of the scenery and I got to uh, pick a flower for my girlfriend that came and laid next to me. And we waited for two hours for health and, or for the uh, search and rescue to get there. Helicopter wasn't available, but they came and got us th with their ATVs. And Man, they worked together as a real strong community. These four guys from all different locations, they didn't know each other. They hadn't had this experience before. And they worked together. They hustled down there. They carried me up and winched me back up and took me to the hospital. The first hospital I went to, they... They were blown away. They said they've never seen a knee injury like this in eastern Idaho. And they said amputation was the only the only option, and they were really worried about it. And for some reason, they asked another doctor and another doctor and another doctor. And three after three doctors, they all said amputation. And then finally, a doctor in Idaho Falls, a, a surgeon, uh, Dr. Wrencher, I hope it's okay I say his name. but the Absolutely. Man, the man saved my life. You know, he saved my leg. Uh, he had the courage to, to go ahead and take on the challenge. And uh, since June, I've had five knee surgeries. Uh <laughs> lost my job, which is kind of terrifying, right? If you're a full-time single dad, I've got a house payment and all these bills and, and, um, uh, and, and had to go to physical therapy, learn how to walk and all these, I got to, I got to do all these things in the past six months. And what I could tell you is I haven't been financially insecure, not one bit. The community around me pulled together and showed me what a community is all about. And I got to be of service to the community. 
I got to focus on loving my son, making sure he was lovable, taking him to school every day, bringing him back. And, and I got to walk through this experience. I got to pick up more sponsees and get more active, started a meeting at my house twice a week. I just, my life got so rich and so full, despite Really, I could perceive it as a really bad and scary circumstance. And not once did I complain. Not once did I did I give up or feel frightened or think about using drugs or drinking. It's because of that connection I have to God and the ability to be grateful despite what happens and, uh, and just move forward, do the next right thing. I know that recovery is a, a journey, not a destination, but you're certainly well into the journey when you can face that, deal with all of that, and stay above it as you have. And I liked, as you were describing the accident there, how the rescue people came in. They didn't know each other. But still, I'm going to guess the left hand knew what the right hand was doing all the time. And that just makes me think of the recovery community. Uh, We hadn't met before today. Now we're part of the same team in the sense of recovery, trying to reach out, trying to bring healing and help and hope to others that are tuned in and listening to today's podcast. And we know that this will spread and that, it, you know, I've always been of the belief when we share our story, we're sharing the story of others. People relate. Maybe they haven't been in that ATV accident, uh, that four-wheeler accident, but they've had their moments. Maybe even they've not been into addiction to drugs or alcohol, but maybe it's been pornographic materials, maybe an addiction to relationships, uh, addiction to food. There's a lot of crossover, and we all need that community of support, those who are with us and those who surround us in a positive way. Does that make sense to you, Sean? Absolutely does. Yeah, yeah. Sean, where do you see your future going? Uh, I know God's in charge, and uh, we don't necessarily have that roadmap on our lap, but, uh, yeah, I know you've got a play in this, so where do you see it going? That's a really hard question to answer. There's uh, quite a few things that I could mention about it, but I I really, really try hard not to focus on what's ahead of me, what the future looks like. I definitely don't spend any time looking behind me, um, but I, I do have it on my heart to carry this message and I do believe that I'm properly armed with facts about myself. I'm properly armed with facts about recovery. And I do believe that, that the future is, is definitely going to be full of lots of selfless service and, and uh, lots of community. Um, I believe that I'm going to play a part in uh, making my hometown of Blackfoot, Idaho, a little more like Anderson, Indiana. How big is Blackfoot, Idaho? What's population? Can you give us a ballpark just for a frame of reference? I don't recall. I looked it up recently, and I, I forgot completely. I want to say maybe uh, 40,000. Okay. Something okay. like okay. that. That's what we'll call it for today. And when <laughs> we get home, we'll Google and find yeah. out for sure. All right? Yeah. That's cool, too. Uh, with that being said... It sounds like your plans are to follow where God wants to put you. You're prepared for that from your past experiences and your future desires, your hopes, your willingness, your 
your obedience, and that's better than sacrifice. I read somewhere in the scriptures, and you have that, so we invite that to continue. Where do you see recovery five years from now, ten years from now, not so much in your personal life, but in in society? I've seen changes. I've seen the stigma lessened, the bias lessened. I can remember a day when if you used the word addiction, you had to whisper it. Oh, you wow. didn't dare say, I, uh, my son has my you know, brother, my sister, whatever. You didn't speak it out loud. We have that that freedom and recognize that need now. What, where do you see recovery going in the next 10 years? Where do you see society with that? Tough question, but <laughs> give it a shot, please. Yes, I would love to. Um, you know, I was taught that recovery is experiential. You had mentioned something earlier about it. It's not philosophical. It's not about what you know. It's about what you do. And I think over a long period of time, everybody's going to have the experiences they need to have. And over the period of time that I've been around alone, I've watched it grow and mold and double in numbers and and become more widely acceptable um, all around. It's more of a normal thing to be in recovery. And uh, so as a result of the fact that it's experiential, I really truly believe that that the end point is the same, some sort of conscious contact to some sort of God or higher power. I believe that people suffer from conscious separation. And so over a period of time, with the end result of conscious contact being being the goal, the solution, um, no matter how they find their way there, they're going to have enough experiences in their life over another five or ten years to finally hear the truth about themselves and finally hear the language of the heart and finally get connected to whatever power is going to bring them out of the gates of hell. You know, if we can just continue to chip away at that, give them those bits and pieces, pretty soon it piles up to where you've got to climb it to get over it, and then you've got to really look at it. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Sean, is there anything else you'd like to add here today? I'm just really pleased to have this experience here in Anderson. You know, if talk about where recovery is going to be in 10 years. If you just take a look at my life and you take a look, at the despair and hopelessness that I had just nine years ago. And you take a look at where I'm at today, and that doesn't include big house or big cars or big money, but my perspective and perception, my reaction to life today is so much more healthy than it ever was. My relationships are better. My communication is better. My fear is subsided, right, most of the time. Uh, and, And I'm able to take... I'm able to have a good day despite the circumstances for the past nine years. And so um, I just I'm, I'm so blessed for this opportunity because here I am. I get to just carry a message. I'm just a messenger and, and this message is mine. And, and um, I've had the experiences to back it up. So if you're if you're in that hole, if you're struggling with addiction or codependency or anger or gambling or any of that, if you're struggling uh, just don't lose hope because you're not alone. I used to think I was alone and nobody understood me. Really, truly, you're not alone. Either myself 
or somebody I know can hook you up with somebody that is having the same experience that you're going through right now. So just don't give up and expose yourself to the truth and do the things that you not might not believe in. The solution did not look like the solution to me. And so if you hear someone's experience, you relate with them, and somehow they made it out, and they're happy, joyous, and free, just hang on to them and do what they tell you to do, and you'll get the results. It obviously worked for them. There's no one path. We know that. That's right. Uh, there was no one path leading you into the darkness. There's no one path that will lead you out of the darkness. But don't stop until don't you stop. get there. So Never Sean, give up hope. Yes, again, on behalf of Faith in Your Recovery and our parent group of Better Life, Brianna's Hope, thank you for your time today. We wish you and your future endeavors well, and we know you'll continue to impact those who are struggling. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thank you. Uh, Folks, we don't believe that you've come this far to only come this far. Your answer. Your healing, your recovery may be just around the corner or maybe in our next episode. Have faith in your recovery by having faith in yourself, your journey, and above all, God. Stay in the battle. God bless.